0: Audio Literature Odyssey, where every story takes you on a journey. Recorded by Nicole Doolin. On the web at NicoleDoolin.com Welcome back to Audio Literature Odyssey. In this episode, I'm going to introduce the next story, I think it's time for some medieval literature, so I'm going to read the Arthurian romance Lancelot, The Knight of the Cart, written by Chrétien de Troyes, circa 1170, translated by W. W. Comfort in 1914. The text of Lancelot is over 80 pages, so I'm going to present this mythical tale in installments, which should roughly run at least 30 minutes in length. To start us off, I'm going to read our translator's introduction to the volume of romances by Datois. Instead of reading the entire introduction of Comfort, I'm going to read an abridgment to highlight what most concerns the story of Lancelot and Datois' background. Introduction by WW W. Comfort. Chrétien Datois has had the peculiar fortune of becoming the best known of the old French poets to students of medieval literature and of remaining practically unknown to anyone else. The man who, so far as we know, first recounted the romantic adventures of Arthur's knights, Gawain, Yvain, Eric, Lancelot, and Parseval, has been forgotten. The present volume has grown out of the desire to place these romances of adventure before the reader of English in a prose version based directly upon the oldest form in which they exist. Chretien de Tois wrote in Champagne during the third quarter of the twelfth century. Of his life we know neither the beginning nor the end, but we know that between eleven sixty and eleven seventy two he lived, perhaps as herald at arms at Troyes, where was the court of his patroness, the Countess Marie de Champagne. She was the daughter of Louis the Seventh and of that famous Eleanor of Aquitaine. The old city of Troyes where she held her court, must be set down large in any map of literary history. For it was there that Chrétien was led to write four romances, which together form the most complete expression we possess from a single author of the ideals of French chivalry. These romances, written in eight-syllable rhyming couplets, treat respectively of Éric and Enide, Crigès, Yvain, and Lancelot, It is true the romance of Lancelot was not completed by Chrétien, we are told, but the poem is his in such large part that one would be over-scrupulous not to call it his. The other three poems mentioned are his entire. Arthur and his knights, as we see them in the earliest French romances, have little in common with their Celtic prototypes, as we dimly catch sight of them in Irish, Welsh, and Breton legend. Cretien belonged to a generation of French poets who rook over a great mass of Celtic folklore they imperfectly understood, and made of what, of course, it had never been before, the vehicle to carry a rich freight of chivalric customs and ideals. As an ideal of social conduct, the code of chivalry never touched the middle and lower classes, but it was the religion of the aristocracy and of the 12th century. Never was literature in any age closer to the ideals of a social class. So true is this, that it is difficult to determine whether social practices called forth the literature, or whether, as in the case of the 17th century pastoral romance in France, it is truer to say that literature suggested to society its ideals. Be that as it may, it is proper to observe that the French romances of adventure portray late medieval aristocracy as it fain would be. For the glaring inconsistencies between the reality and the ideal, one may turn to the chronicles of the period, yet even history tells of many an ugly sin rebuked, and of many a gallant deed performed because of the courteous ideals of chivalry. The debt of our own social code to this literature of courtesy and frequent self-sacrifice is perfectly manifest. What Chrétien's immediate and specific source was for his romances is of deep interest to the student. Unfortunately, he has left us in doubt. He speaks in the vaguest way of the materials he used. There is no evidence that he had any Celtic written source. We are thus thrown back upon Latin or French literary originals, which are lost, or upon current continental lore, going back to a Celtic source. The material evidently was at hand, and Chrétien appropriated it, without much understanding of its primitive spirit, but appreciating it as a setting for the ideal society dreamed of, but not realized in his own day. Add to this literary perspicacity a good foundation in classic fable, a modicum of ecclesiastical doctrine, a remarkable facility in phrase, figure, and rhyme, and we have the foundation for Chrétien's art as we shall find it upon closer examination. A French narrative poet of the twelfth century had three categories of subject matter from which to choose legends connected with the history of France legends connected with Arthur and other Celtic heroes, and stories culled from the history or mythology of Greece and Rome, current in Latin and French translations. Christian appears to have chosen as his special field the stories of Celtic origin dealing with Arthur, the round table, and other features of Celtic folklore. Not only was he alive to the literary interest of this material, when rationalized to suit the taste of French readers, his is further the credit of having given to somewhat crude folklore that polish and elegance which is peculiarly French, and which is inseparably associated with the Arthurian legends in all modern literature. To Chrétien, so far as we can see, is due the considerable honor of having constituted Arthur's court as a literary center and rallying point for an innumerable company of knights and ladies engaged in a never-ending series of amorous adventures and dangerous quests. Rather than unqualifiably attribute to Chrétien this important literary convention, one should bear in mind that all his poems imply familiarity on the part of his readers with the heroes of the court of which he speaks. And now let us consider the faults which a modern reader will not be slow to detect in Chrétien's style. Most of his salient faults are common to all medieval narrative literature. They may be ascribed to the extraordinary leisure of the class for whom it was composed, a class which was always ready to read an old story told again, and which would tolerate any description, however detailed. The pastimes of this class of readers were jousting, hunting, and making love, hence the preponderance of these matters in the literature of its leisure hours. No detail of the joust or hunt was unfamiliar or unwelcome to these readers. No subtle arguments concerning the art of love were too obtruse to delight a generation steeped in amorous casuistry and allegories and if some scene seemed to us indelicate, yet after comparison with other authors of his time, Chrétien must be let off with a light sentence. It is certain he intended to avoid what was indecent, as did the writers of narrative poetry in general. Chrétien's originality, then, consists in his portrayal of the social ideal of the French aristocracy in the 12th century. So far as we know, he was the first to create, in the vulgar tongues, a vast court, where men and women lived in conformity with the rules of courtesy, where the truth was told, where generosity was open-handed, where the weak and the innocent were protected by men who dedicated themselves to the cult of honor and to the quest of a spotless reputation. Honor and love combined to engage the attention of this society. These were its religion in a far more real sense than was that of the Church. Perfection was attainable under this code of ethics. Gawain, for example, was a perfect knight. Though the ideals of this court and those of Christianity are in accord at many points, yet courtly love and Christian morality are irreconcilable. This Arthurian material, as used by Chrétien, is fundamentally immoral as judged by Christian standards. Beyond question, the poets and the public alike knew this to be the case, and therein lay its charm for a society in which the actual relations of the sexes were rigidly prescribed by the church, and by feudal practice, rather than by the sentiments of the individuals concerned. The passionate love of Lancelot for Guinevere fascinates the conventional Christian society, of the twelfth century and of the twentieth century alike, but there is only one name among men for such relations as theirs, and neither righteousness nor reason lie that way. Even Tennyson, in spite of all he has done to spiritualize this material, was compelled to portray the inevitable dissolution and ruin of Arthur's court. Chrétien well knew the difference between right and wrong, between reason and passion. Lancelot is flagrantly immoral, and the poet is careful to state that for this particular romance he is indebted to his patroness Marie de Champagne. He says it was she who furnished him with both the material of the story and its method of treatment. Scholars have sought to fix the chronology of the poet's works and have been tempted to speculate upon the evolution of his literary and moral ideas. When we speculate upon the development of Chrétien's moral ideas, we are not on such sure ground. His standards vary widely in the different romances. How much of this variation is due to chance circumstance imposed by the nature of his subject, or by the taste of his public, and how much to changing conviction, it is easy to see, When we consider some contemporary novelist, how dangerous it is to judge of moral convictions as reflected in literary work. Lancelot must be the keystone of any theory constructed concerning the moral evolution of Chrétien. After the works of his youth, consisting of lyric poems and translations embodying the ideals of Ovid and of the school of contemporary troubadour poets, Chrétien took up the authorian material and started upon a new course. Lancelot, with its significant dedication to the Countess of Champagne, is one of the four romances. Of all the poet's work, the tale of the rescue of Guinevere by her lover seems to express most closely the ideals of Marie's court, in which devotion and courtesy thinly disguise free love. A few words must be devoted to Chrétien's place in the history of medieval narrative poetry. The heroic epic songs of France had been current for perhaps a century before our poet began to write. These epic poems, of which some three score have survived, portray a warlike, virile, unsentimental feudal society whose chief occupation was fighting and whose dominant ideals were faith in God Loyalty to feudal family ties, and bravery in battle. Woman's place is comparatively obscure, and of love making there is little said. It is a poetry of vigorous manhood, of uncompromising morality, and of hard knocks given and taken for God, for Christendom, and the King of France. In the oldest epic poems, we find only God fearing men and a few self effacing women. In the Arthurian romances, we meet gentlemen and ladies more elegant and seductive than any one in the epic poems, but less fortified by faith and sense of duty against vice, because breathing an inveterating atmosphere of leisure and decadent morality. Though the church made the attempt in Parsifal, it could never lay its hand so effectively upon this Celtic material, because it contained too many elements, which were root and branch inconsistent with the essential teachings of Christianity. The student of the history of social and moral ideals will find much to interest him in Chrétien's romances. Poets in his own land refer to him with reverence, and foreign poets complimented him to a high degree by direct translation, and by embroidering upon the themes which he had made popular. The knights made famous by Chrétien soon crossed the frontiers and obtained rights of citizenship in counties so diverse as Germany, England, Scandinavia, Holland, Italy, and to a lesser extent in Spain and Portugal. The inevitable tendency of the 14th and 15th centuries to reduce poetry to prose affected the Arthurian material. Vast prose compilations finally embodied in print the matter formerly expressed in verse. And it was in this form that the stories were known to later generations, until revived interest in the Middle Ages brought to light the manuscripts in verse. So we leave Cletian to speak across the ages for himself and his generation. He is to be read as a storyteller rather than as a poet, as a casuist rather than as a philosopher. But when all deductions are made, his significance as a literary artist and as the founder of a precious literary tradition distinguishes him from all other poets of the Latin races between the close of the empire and the arrival of Dante. End of the introduction by W. W. Comfort I hope you enjoyed listening to Audio Literature Odyssey. Please remember that these files are not in the public domain, you can enjoy them free of charge, but you cannot use them for commercial purposes. To learn more about this podcast, visit nicoledoolin.com ALO. Thank you for listening.